The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Thank you, Richard. Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. Glad to be with you, whether you're in the room or online. As Richard says this morning, we are coming around the bend. We are in our next last week, wrestling our way through Isaiah, and typically... The text and then reflecting on it together. But as we do every once in a while, because this text is so long and so complicated, uh, I've decided I'm going to put on my tour guide hat once again. And what I want to do is instead of reading and then talking, we're going to work our way through it together. And hopefully I'll be like a tour guide for you on your way through this text saying, oh, look over there. Pay attention to that site. Don't miss this thing over here. And together we'll hear from the Lord together. And if you go with me on this tour, uh, at the end, I'll give you just two things that I think this text is trying to tell us. But I need to warn you, this uh, particular text is not easy. It doesn't take us only to places that we'd prefer to be. This is a hard word. There are places where you'll wonder who can accept it. But my sense and hope and belief is that if we go with Scripture where it wants to take us this morning, we'll find a word that is transforming and life-giving. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to be present with us. Jesus, you are the lion and the lamb. You are the beginning and the end. You are the king of kings and lord of lords. And you are the elder brother to every one of your children, including the one that just received the sign of your salvation on her head. Lord, would you be present with us this morning? Would your word be present here this morning? And would we be changed by your presence with us? We ask these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so if Isaiah 63 through 65 is a tour that we're going to take together, the first stop on this tour, the first thing we're going to see is we're going to encounter in this text God the warrior working judgment and salvation. The first thing we're going to encounter on this tour is God the warrior bringing judgment and salvation. So we'll start with Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, and I'll warn you in advance, this is a difficult text. Because it begins, who is this who comes from Edom? That is the land of our enemies. In crimson garments from Basra, the capital city. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And the Lord responds, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And the people respond, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And the Lord responds, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, says the Lord, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Our first stop in this text is an encounter with the God who shows up wearing armor ready for war. A God who brings just 
judgment and who names that just judgment the day of redemption, the day of salvation. But it is a day of redemption and salvation that includes horrifying judgment on God's enemies. We've heard this before for 65 chapters. We've been hearing Isaiah say that, he ma- that God had made a world good and righteous and just and humans had messed it up and had arrayed themselves against God's goodness and God's justice, and that God would not let humans forever destroy his world. God would not let neighbors forever abuse and harm their neighbors. If they did not repent, he would come in justice. And this passage begins by announcing that God is coming in justice as the warrior, a day of salvation, but a day of difficult judgment for those who refuse to put down their idolatry and their injustice and sin. We've been hearing this message, but nevertheless, the depiction of God as a warrior whose clothes are splattered with the blood of his enemies is disturbing. It shocks us. We don't like it. It's uncomfortable. We wonder, why is God so wrathful? What kind of God are we dealing with here? And we live in an age where these questions are especially heavy to us. Because we know that for many people, when they think about the God of the Bible, what they imagine is some all-powerful jerk. You know, if he gets out of bed on the wrong side, he's going to wipe out somebody over here. We know that that belief about the God that we worship exists. And this text, if this is all we had, makes us get where that stereotype comes from. We wonder what's going on with God's wrath here. Well, Brent Strawn, a Bible scholar who's written a recent book with a title that I shouldn't like, but I do, which is Lies My Preacher Told Me, an honest look at the Old Testament, says that we need to take another look at this wrath of God's. He says that in Scripture, when God is angry, God is always angry about something. It is crucial, therefore, as the great 20th century rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel observed, to distinguish between the wrath of God and the God of wrath. The second, the God of wrath, suggests that God just is wrathful as a matter of course, as part of the divine nature, maybe even always. But the first, to speak of of the wrath of God, indicates that wrath is something God has about something. When that something that makes God mad changes, then so does God's wrath. It too changes. It dissipates. It disappears. It relents. God is no longer wrathful when that something is taken care of. In other words, God is not wrathful the way that God is love. God is love endlessly, relentlessly, always, no matter what, from eternity past to eternity present. But because God is love, fully and finally, from eternity past to eternity present, when he sees human injustice and idolatry that harms the neighbor and destroys creation, his love will not be silent. And God becomes wrathful at that which deserves wrath. What is that in Scripture, though? Brent Strong, the answer he gives is the same answer Isaiah gives. It's sin and it's injustice. And to quote Rabbi Heschel again, he says that this wrath of God's is a lamentation. All prophecy, says Heschel, is one great declaration. God is not indifferent to evil. God is not indifferent to evil. If you want to know what God the warrior showing up, ready for blood is about, it's this. God is not indifferent to evil. 
And then Strawn says, perhaps if we don't like divine judgment and wrath, wherever we find it in Scripture, it's because we are perfectly comfortable with injustice and sin. Because we, unlike God, are all too often indifferent to evil. The God that Isaiah presents to us is a God whose wrath is elicited by human violence and injustice and oppression and sin. And in a world like that, God comes to save. But his salvation is also a day of judgment because God is not indifferent to evil. That's the first stop on this tour that we come to if we're looking at Isaiah 63 through 65. But secondly, we don't just encounter God as the warrior coming in just judgment. We also hear God's people lament because they're every bit as guilty as their enemies. We not only encounter this God who says, I am willing to come in judgment against those who would mar my creation and destroy my human image bearers. I'm willing to come in judgment. And then we hear the people lament because they are every bit as guilty as their enemies. You see, you can imagine Israel hearing that God would come to judge their oppressors, celebrating, which they do. In chapter 63, verses 8 through about 10, they say, oh, it is the day of salvation. We can see that our God is faithful. We can see his steadfast love, his compassion. And the fact that God will rescue them from the oppressor calls them to, uh, reminds them to celebrate all these great things that God has done in the past. He brought us out of Egypt. He rescued us. But then, all of a sudden, very quickly in verse 10, there's this shift. And the people of God declare, but they rebelled and grieved God's Holy Spirit. Therefore, God turned to be their enemy and he himself fought against them. That terrifying sentence that the people of God who'd been given every opportunity to dwell with him rebelled and turned against God, and so he turned against them and treated them as an enemy, that terrifying sentence sums up so much of what we've seen for 63 chapters of Isaiah. That God had called forth the people in the very first chapter, sons have I raised, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows whose master is, but my people rebel against me. Violence is in their hands. They fill up my sanctuary with bloodshed. We've been hearing this for 63 chapters. God say, my people who I've called by my name have relentlessly refused me. And therefore, I will come and be as an enemy to them. The people of God might have celebrated that God would bring judgment on their enemies. But pretty quickly, we hear them lament to discover that if they persist in their rebellion, they will become God's enemies. And so for something like 22 verses running from 63 well into 64, the people of God lament, they petition, they complain, they cry out, they plead. Listen to some of the words that they cry to God. They say, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from us. They say, you are our father, God. Though even Abraham do not know us, though Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old. That's your name, Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return, O Lord, for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. The people of God cry out to God. 
They say, turn to us in compassion. At points, they move from petition to repentance. Listen to Isaiah 63, 19. The people declare, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled. Like those who are not called by your name. I don't know about you this morning, but I feel indicted by those lines. Oh Lord, we have come. We look like those over whom you have never ruled. And when I look at my life, when I look at my story, and when I look at the story of God's church in this place and in this space over time and over history, and all the ways the church has tolerated abuse and shored up greed and participated in ethnocentrism, all of our relentless failures, I think, what, what, what do we look like but a people over whom God has never ruled? A people not called by his name. I hear my lament there that we do not look like the Lord's. And as a result, we set ourselves in the sights of his judgment. The people say, behold, you're angry and we sinned in our sins. We've been a long time. Shall we be saved? We've become like one who's unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The people say, there is no one who looks to you. There is no one who does what's just in your sight. We could, but we don't. And we deserve whatever you've got planned for our enemies. These 22 some odd verses turn finally to pleading. Where the people throw themselves on God. Not on the basis of their own righteousness. But strictly on the basis of his commitment to the relationship. But now, O Lord, here we are at the end. You are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. And here the people of God lamenting because they know they're no better than their enemies. Say, God, we've got nothing on our side of the ledger. Our only hope is that a father cannot finally turn away from his children. Our only hope is that the potter cannot finally turn away from the work of his hands. Will you relent and redeem and restore. Now, I just want you to think for a second. We're on a tour. Those are the first two stops. I want you to think about where you expect the next stop to go. Seriously, think about what you think is next based on your relationship with God and what we've studied in Isaiah. Because I gotta confess, it's not what I think. As I wrestled with this passage this week, the next step on this tour is not what I thought. We've heard God say, I will come in justice against my enemies and on the day of salvation. And we've heard the people say, ooh, we're on that side because of all of our sin. Will you forgive us, God? I know what I'm expecting to hear next. I know where I'm expecting this tour to go. But the third thing we come to in chapters 63 through 65 is the need to pay attention to the Lord's difficult response. The people have said, why? Why, O oh Lord? Why have you turned your compassion from us? Why have you made us wander in the wilderness? Why have you allowed our hearts to be hardened? Why? Why? Rescue us. It's all on you, God. You're our Father. And this is how the Lord responds. I was ready. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. 
I spread out my hands all the day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. This is not what I expected. I expected God to say, awesome, forgiveness, restoration, let's go. End of sermon. May the Lord bless. No, God says, hold on a minute. What's going on here? It seems to me like part of what God's saying, the people have said, why are we wandering in the wilderness? Why have you hardened our hearts? Why have you turned our face? Why have you not showed up? It seems to me that God's response is, in part, don't put that on me. I've been here. I've been here present, offering salvation generation after generation, and you have relentlessly refused me. Don't put your failures on me, nor think that you can have salvation on anyone else's terms. Because the difficult message that God gives his people is simply this. In the face of their persistent idolatry, they're saying we're ready to turn, but God says you're persisting in your idolatry all the same. Therefore, Isaiah 65, 6 and 7, behold, the Lord speaking, it is written before me, I will not keep silent. I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Now, surely this is a hard message. Surely this is difficult to accept. If we didn't like the image of God the warrior strapping on his sword, if that was uncomfortable for us, we really hate this stuff about the sins of the fathers falling on the children. I'll punish you for your sins and the sin. That doesn't seem right at all. That strikes us as completely unfair. This sounds like some alien, backward, foreign concept from long ago that we need to get rid of. It's so strange. It doesn't sound anything like the stuff we see today. Or does it? Or does it? Or do we not know in our day and talk about almost constantly the way that injustice and sin rolls down a hill like an avalanche of snow that picks up momentum, that picks up energy, that goes faster and harder and more devastatingly. Do we not know that dynamic? Do we, do we not look at our history and see how the racism that people have called the original sin of this country has picked up momentum, how it picked up speed, how it gathered energy? Do we not reach for language like systemic sin and corporate guilt to try to talk about the way that sin rolls down through the generations, picking up power in its path? Do we not look at some of our own families and identify ways that sins of the fathers get passed on to children? Do we not talk about generational curses to try to explain the way that we get trapped again and again and again? No, actually, we are very familiar with this idea that injustice and oppression and idolatry and sin run downhill and they pick up power in their path and we get worse, not better. And unless something is done, unless something is done to interrupt the flow, the guilt that we stand under is the logical extension of our own guilt and all the guilt unaddressed that's gone before us that we find ourselves enmeshed in and mired in and caught up in and guilty of. No, we know this all too well. So God stands before his people and says, I'm hearing your prayer. Let me make sure you understand something. This situation you're in, don't put that on me. And if it's salvation you're looking for, you're going to have it on my terms or not at all. What hope are we left with in a world like that, with people like us, in a God like this? 
Well, we've been with Isaiah long enough to know where he's eventually going to go. We've been with Isaiah long enough to know that here again, no matter how loudly God shouts judgment, every announcement of judgment is an invitation to repentance. We know that. We have known that from chapter 6, where God said to Isaiah, your ministry will be primarily failure, but there will be a remnant. Every announcement of judgment is an invitation to repentance. When God shouts judgment, he cries out, come to me. And so here it is in the text. As we continue through, God turns from reminding the people of judgment to summoning them and inviting them to hope. He says, as the new wine is found in a cluster of grapes, and they say, don't destroy the grapes, for there's a blessing in it. So the Lord says, I will do for my servant's sake. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen people shall possess it, and my servant shall dwell there. Who will this be for, this promised redemption? Isaiah 65 tells us, for the people who seek the Lord, to those who answer when he calls and choose what he delights in. This is a message we know. God's announcement of judgment is an invitation to salvation in him. And in fact, we know all sorts of things because we've been with Isaiah so long. We know that to to, to access that hope, to become a part of that remnant, depends utterly not only on God's announcement of an offer of forgiveness, but God's willingness to send a servant that we heard about a few weeks ago in Isaiah 52 and 53. God's willingness to send a servant who would suffer and die and carry the sins of his people to make life a possibility. We've heard this story so many times in these 65 chapters, and Isaiah is reminding us again and again, yes, judgment because of your sin, but hope, but life, but renewal, if you will, but turn. If you will, but cast yourselves on the mercy of God. If you will come to the living one who has been waiting with open arms and is waiting with open arms and will be to any who will turn and come. We know this story. And yet what happens on the last stop of this tour in Isaiah 65, 17 to 25 is completely new. We know this story. We've been hearing this tale, but now we come to a part in the book that is completely new because in 65, 70 to 25, in the last stop on this tour, Isaiah offers the people a hope beyond all imagining. In Isaiah 65, at the end, Isaiah offers his people, the Lord offers his people a hope beyond all imagining. Listen to 65, 17. For behold, the Lord says, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but you be glad and be joyful forever in that which I create. Why? For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. And I myself will be joyful in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Here we discover something genuinely new. God's plans for his people are not just forgiveness, but new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, a new act so unimaginably hopeful that the only words that Isaiah can find to use are like, it's like new heavens, new earth, new creation. And that new creation that God is talking about will be one in which the people have joy because God makes them to be a joy and God takes joy in them. It is a picture of deepest joy 
and hope. Former sorrows forgotten, the people joyful and glad forever. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He wants us to smell this new creation, this new heavens and earth. He wants us to taste it. He wants us to long for it. So he says, let me tell you about this work that God's doing. Let me tell you about this new heavens and the new earth that is on offer for his people. This is a community of unimaginable long life. Isaiah 65, 20 says, No more shall there be in this new heavens and new earth. An infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. What he's saying is, in this new heavens and new earth, life will go on basically forever. And oh, in the old heavens and the old earth, we know so much about short life, don't we? We know about life cut off by disease and by violence. We know about life lost in all sorts of ways. But here God says, no, I am bringing a new heavens and new earth. Well, the least, the least aged person will be 100. Life unimaginably long. This new heavens and new earth will be a community, God says. A community where work always pays off. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. To a people like us, right? To a people like us who knew all about work that didn't work. To a people who knew all about the many ways that the fruit of your labor could be plundered. All about the many ways that your best laid plans go awry. All about the many ways that one's efforts could never attain their goal. God says to a people like that, a people like us, here's the unimaginable hope. Work will always yield fruit and you will be the ones to feast on it. That is a hope beyond our imagining, but it goes beyond that. This is a hope for a community where the children will dwell in utter security. Listen to what Isaiah says. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For their offspring shall be the blessed of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do we not know all too much about bearing children for calamity? Do we not know all too much about lying awake at night wondering about all the violence and the addiction and the, and the, the temptation that surrounds us and our children? Have we not watched in any church that you've ever been in? We've watched young people come up and grow up and get sucked in. We've watched the violence take away the lives of people that we love. We have borne children for calamity. And God says, oh, but when I bring my new heavens and new earth, every child will be destined only for life. They will not bear children for calamity. We have seen too much calamity among the children. We, we fear too much calamity for our children. That's a fear that every single one of us faces. And it's also a fear that we do not face fairly or evenly, as we're all too aware as we're all too aware of the number of our children who suffer calamity through violence in their neighborhoods, violence in their homes, violence on streets, violence at the hand of law enforcement officers. Like Adam Toledo, a 13-year-old boy killed recently in Chicago. We are well acquainted with bearing children for calamity. But God says, I have a hope beyond all your imagining. My people will be like trees. 
they will dwell secure. And all of this caught up in an unimaginable intimacy with God. In this new creation, this new heavens and new earth, before the people call, God says, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. Don't we know about feeling God's absence? Haven't we suffered wondering where he is? God says, I will do a new thing where you will hear my voice responding before a word is on your tongue. Is that not a hope? Is that not a hope beyond all our magic? Is that not a hope to make our hearts sing? We who have suffered the dark night of the soul, wondering where, O oh Lord, where, O oh Lord, how long, O oh Lord, I will answer you before a word is on your mouth, says the Lord. That's the new creation, the new heavens. That's the new earth that God is promising his people. And it won't just be unending life. It won't just be secure children. It won't just be work that always pays off for God's presence. It will be a renewed creation from top to bottom. The wolf and the lamb that are enemies shall graze together. The lion that threatens to destroy shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be that serpent that got this whole thing off track in the first place, dust shall be his food, and none shall hurt. None shall hurt. None, none, none. Nothing, nobody, no one shall hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. That is the hope that God brings us to in Isaiah 65. We have heard the offer of redemption, but only now we hear the glory of the hope that's ahead of us. That's what Isaiah 63 through 65 exposes us to, an encounter with the God who is a warrior ready to come against the kind of dehumanizing idolatry and injustice that mars his world, a people who lament because we know we're just as guilty as our enemies, a God who responds with difficult words about judgment if we do not turn, and then an offer of unimaginable hope for all who call upon his name. That's the journey that Isaiah 63 through 65 takes us on. What would it mean to go on that journey with Isaiah and be transformed by it? Well, just two things. To go on this journey with Isaiah and be transformed by it would be to discover an offer of hope we can stake our lives on. It would be to discover an offer of hope we can stake our lives on. And I think it's worth just pausing here for a moment. Remember, we're only doing two points, not three. So I can pause on this one and just say the offer of hope that we encounter in this text is so different from the offer of hope we have so often settled for. The Christian church in America has so often explicitly or implicitly told a story that goes like this. God created this great world full of all sorts of great stuff that you'd really have loved if you'd ever seen it. But we screwed it all up and so God sent his son Jesus so he can snatch you out of that wrecked world and take you someplace else. This world is not your home. You're just passing through. And God's going to reach into your body and take out your soul, that little spiritual part of you, and take you someplace far away from this bad, ugly world that you messed up. And you'll spend eternity with him in this place that has lots of clouds and an occasional angel baby, if the Hallmark cards can be believed. So often that's the story that we've told ourselves. And, you know, that story offers a hope better than hell, right? I'd, I'd sure like to be the soul in the clouds with God rather than face God's judgment. And it sure is a lot, a little bit better than the worst days of our lives here on earth. 
So maybe there's some hope there, but man, it sure does leave a lot that we care about out, doesn't it? When you hear that story, don't you think, man, that feels like, I just feel like that leaves out so much that matters to me. Don't you wonder, like, what is so good about the little soul thing in me being in clouds with God, right? And the good news of Scripture is that that story is not the hope that God offers us. The story that God offers us is not God created a good world, you screwed it up, so he sent Jesus so you can get out of it. The good story, the story of the Bible, the story of the gospel is that God created a good world and when we screwed it up, God said, I will never give up on my good creation. I will reclaim it for my own. I will take back what is mine, my people and my created world. It is mine and I will reclaim it. That's the good news. How do we know that? We know it in Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't say, if you repent, God will take you away somewhere else. Isaiah says, no, no, they'll live like trees. They'll build houses. They'll plant vineyards. They'll eat their fruit. They'll bear children, but not for calamity. The wolves and the lambs will lie down, and I will be with you. That's the hope that Isaiah gives. Unless you think he got it wrong, at the end of the Bible, in the very last book, When John looks and has a vision that the Spirit gives him of what will happen when Jesus returns, he doesn't see a rapture. He doesn't see a bunch of bodies left behind so souls can escape. No, he quotes this passage. He says, I saw what Isaiah saw. I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down, coming down, coming down. Behold, the dwelling of God is somewhere far away that he'll take. No, behold, the dwelling of God is with humanity and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the story that you live in. That's the story the Bible offers. And you know how we know that? It's not just because of Isaiah towards the beginning and John towards the end. It's because of Jesus in the middle, right? Because Jesus is the God who dwelt in heaven in eternal light from eternity past to eternity future and said, I will become part of creation. Have you ever thought about that? The incarnation, God becoming flesh, physical flesh, hands and feet like you and me. Tongues and eyes and a a, a brain that could have been put on the Enneagram. (laughs) A real life human person. That's not just God's act of salvation for the world. That's God's vindication of the world. That's his reclaiming of the world. God could not have become human if there wasn't something good about human life worth saving. And so God became human. He became the old creation. And he died the death. He died the death that a flawless human ruler telling the truth about God would inevitably die in a world like ours for our sins. But early one Sunday morning, he got up with all power in his hands and the father took that body, that old creation body, and he didn't leave it in the grave and take Jesus' soul. No, he took that body and he rebuilt it and he renewed it and he transformed it and he resurrected it. And the truth of the gospel is what happened to Jesus in that tomb will happen to you if you're in Christ and will happen to the world. That hope, this is what that hope means. This is what that hope means. It means that everything that you love, God will reclaim. Did you know that? Do you wake up with that? Everything you love and care about, God loves and cares about too. That feeling that you get when you hold one of these babies in your hands or hold your lover's hand for the first time, the way that the barbecue girl smells in a spring afternoon at your mom's house, 
the sound of music that can make you cry or dance, a vision of the stars, the smell of the sea, the eyes that the kids make when they learn biology in your classroom. It all matters. It all matters because it matters to God. And God would gather all of that up like he gathered up the body of Jesus and he will resurrect all of it. And behold, the dwelling of God will be with humanity and we will dwell with him forever in a world that is renovated and restored and reclaimed and resurrected along with everything that we've ever loved and cared about on the pattern of Jesus' body broken and risen on the third day. That is a hope worth staking your life on. Not only because of what it says about then, but what it says about now. Because if God's going to gather that smiles, that kid's, the light in that kid's eyes when he learns biology in your classroom someday and bring that into the kingdom somehow, then that kid's smile matters right now. If God's going to take the love that you feel when you hold your spouse's hand into the new heavens and earth somehow, that means that that matters now. If the music and the food and the joy and the community that we build together is the object of God's love, if every atom and every nucleus, if every solar system, if every planet is an object of God's love, that means they can be objects of our love now. Because God loves the world and he will not give up on it. That's a hope you can not only stake your life on, but you can live by. That's the first thing. But secondly, This text calls us to live in light of the reality that it's possible to miss that hope. It is difficult. It is difficult to discover how often the Bible places some of its greatest declarations of resurrection hope on either side with messages of judgment for those who do not repent. It is unsettling to recognize that both Isaiah and Jesus, and John, all bore witness to a God who would reclaim heaven and earth, and all bore witness to the possibility that people would miss out because they refused to turn from the injustice and sin and oppression and violence of their hearts and cast themselves on the living God. We not only live in a world suffused, oozing with a hope, beyond all of our imagining, we live in a world with a hope that you have to take hold of by taking hold of Jesus. And this text forces us to look at a future in which God wipes away every tear and reclaims every joy and makes everything new and then says, will you receive me and with me all things or not? The idea that creation would be regained is thrilling. The possibility that it could be lost is life-changing. We are not just inspired by this vision of the future. We are confronted with it. And not only us, but our neighbors on our street, in our city, in our nation, and in our world as well. Because the good news of the gospel is that this hope is freely available to everyone without remainder. It can be had for the taking because Jesus can be had for the asking. But he must be, he must be accepted. He must be taken. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is making enormous promises to anyone who would cast themselves at his feet. 
Now, what does it mean to live in light of the fact that you could miss this hope? Well, first of all, it means that if any of you are in this room this morning and you have not cast yourself at the feet of Jesus, you've not said, Jesus, Jesus, I deserve the judgment that's falling on your enemies, but I want to become a citizen of your kingdom. I want to follow you. I want to walk with you all the days of my life. I want to dwell in your house forever. Will you forgive me? Will you receive me? If you've never asked Jesus to do that in your life, don't leave without doing that. Because at the center of this passage is a God who loves you more than you can ever imagine, who's bringing a world that catches up everything you love and more and transforming it and making all things new. Don't miss that. And if you want to talk about what that means in your life, after this service, I will be outside and some of the other pastors and community group leaders, anybody else who wants to, and if you want to talk to me about what that means, you want to pray about that, don't, don't miss it. Secondly, if you've done that, Think about all the people you love who are in danger of missing it. I didn't say this in the first service, but a few years ago, Richard gave this illustration that has stuck with me. You know, I know that we, Richard and Michael and Sergi and I are well aware that you guys forget 98% of what we say by the time you get home to lunch, okay? We get that, right? But every once in a while, something sticks. And for me, one of the things that stuck Richard gave an illustration about buying a car, a used car. He said he went to get a used car, and he got a deal that was so good that he was afraid to tell other people about it. He's like, there's no way they're going to get as good of a deal. I just don't trust that the deal can be as good as anybody else. And he said, so many times I'm like that with Jesus. I know that Jesus transformed my life. I know that God has given me hope beyond all my imagining. I know he's forgiven me for stuff that nobody else would forgive me for. And it's so overwhelming. I'm tempted to think maybe he won't show up for all those other people. And so I keep it to myself. Brothers and sisters, if we have a hope that everything that everyone loves that's good in the world will be reclaimed by God, we've got to tell people about it. We've got to tell people about it. We've got to tell people about it with urgency. With urgency. We have a God who addresses the injustice that keeps us up at night. The sin that haunts us and the hope that all would be redeemed. We have that God. Church, if you are here this morning singing and praising him, if you are here celebrating the sign of baptism on this young life, you have that hope. So live like it and invite others to it like it is what we say it is. I recognize that this is a hard teaching in some ways. I recognize there are some aspects of this that are difficult. But brothers and sisters, all of our hopes and dreams, all the promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Hopes beyond anything we can imagine. Will you receive them? And will you share them with this world? Let's pray. Sometimes, Jesus, I don't want to hope that big. Because like Richard with his used car, I'm afraid I'll be disappointed or my neighbors will. Yet God, you are the king who became one of us and lived for us and died for us and rose from the dead for us and ascended to the right hand of the Father and presently rules the world for us. And we cast all of our hopes on you, God. We put all of our dreams at your feet, God. We put all of our fears there, and God, we ask that you would show up 
as the one who makes the lion and the lamb lie down together. That you would show up as the one who guards children so that they're not born to calamity. That you would show up as the one who can soften our hard hearts and take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. God, do that work in us. And then open our mouths, God. Bring us into relationship with people who need this offer of hope. And may they find you through us. We would be your hands and feet, Jesus. Take us, transform us, use us, send us. For your glory, for our good, and for the salvation of our neighbors near and far. And the salvation of our world. We ask these things in your name. Amen.